The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I'm so thankful you're with us this morning. Um, I'm grateful, actually, to just be here, uh, especially coming off of the last couple weeks. Um, we have lived through yet another historic event, church. Seems like they just keep coming uh, this, this year. And um, man, the cold weather didn't just come, but it, it really hit us like a beast this, this last couple of weeks. And um, the good news is I'm beginning to hear reports of things kind of stabilizing, whether it be for power or for water. Um, but I know that for so many, this has been a really challenging couple of weeks, especially for those, from what I'm hearing, that live kind of in the north of our community. And so um, you have all been in my prayers and and I am so glad that we're able to gather again. In fact, leave it to a pandemic and then an Arctic blast to make us, to remind us not to take this for granted. Like, if it has done anything, and it's just reminded me not to take this, to take you, to take what we're able to do in the name of Jesus for granted. And so I'm grateful to be here. This week, we are continuing in Romans Romans is just incredible, and um, we are arriving at a text that for so many is the pinnacle of the entire book. In fact, um, personally, this is a text that I have clung to tighter um, than just about any other. It's a text that God has used in my life for assurance, for peace, for hope in the midst of, of all the things that life throws at, um, at us, and it's a text that God has brought to my mind when I feel unstable. Have you ever felt unstable? This is a text that God has used to minister to me. I, I, am, um, I am so excited. Here's the thing. This is a text about hope. I'm going to say this a lot, but it's a text about hope, and when I say hope, I mean real hope. I mean uh, honest hope, real life hope, something I'm going to call durable hope. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, durable hope. And if there's anything we need, it's that in the days that we are, are living. Um, so if you have your Bibles, grab them, open with me to Romans chapter 8. We are going to be looking at the beautiful verses of 31 through 36. And uh, what I'd like to do, let me read them. Just read them. Let's take them all in, and, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll get to work, okay? So let me read these to us here, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn 
Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Church will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are in control. You are sovereign over all things, all things over over our life, over everything that has happened, that is happening, and that will ever happen. You are sovereign. And God, you are good. Your word tells us of your love for us, the way that you work all things together for the good. Lord, you are so good, and your word is so good, because in it we know the unchanging truth about who you are and about the gospel of Christ. And this morning, the good news, the gospel is on full display in this text. Would you give us the eyes to see it? God, would you work through the proclamation of your word this morning in the name of Jesus, amen, amen. All right, Uh, church, our text this morning is pretty straightforward. It's laid out pretty simply for us. Paul's gonna ask a few questions and then he is going to give an answer to these questions emphatically, all right? Um, And he's just gonna kind of build and build. So let me get us caught up with where we are Um, what Paul has been setting before us. And don't worry, I'm not going to go back to the beginning. That would take us all day. But what I will do at least is to get us caught up at least through what he has just said in chapter 8, okay? So what Paul is laying before us is that through Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus, we've been adopted in the family of God, verse 15. That also we are We are co-heirs together with Christ. That's verse 17. Meaning that as children of God, we have an inheritance that's ours in Christ. More than that, Paul then reminds us, you have received the Holy Spirit. You're indwelled by the Spirit of God. And that the Holy Spirit, he's the guarantee that all of the redemption we have in Jesus is guaranteed through the Spirit. That's verse 23. The Holy Spirit changes everything, and now the Spirit, Paul says, now intercedes on our behalf. That's verse 26. And then Paul reminds us, we've been acquitted of all the wrong things that we have done. And now through Jesus Christ, we're being sanctified, and we have a future glorification in church. Get this, the glorification is so sure, so certain, that Paul talks about it as though it's already happened. That's verse 30. Talk about good news. He just lays it all out, this good news that we have, and it just gets better, church. This morning, we just get to build on that. And and he says, 
with all of that, all of that foundation, Paul now says in our text, now what should we say then about these things? He says, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, what can we, what should we say? What, how can you possibly respond to that? And then Paul says, if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Let's not rush here. If God is for you, if all that I just said is true about you, let me take away the if. Since all that Paul has just said is true about you as a child of God, who could possibly stand against you? What could possibly stand against you? If God is for you, brother and sister, there is nothing, nothing that can stand against you. I remember when uh, COVID-19 first hit, um, seems like yesterday and also like seven years ago, but um, I remember when it first hit that we had this kind of catchphrase that we started to just say a lot here at Stone Oak Bible, and uh, we'll put it up here, but it's God is sovereign, God is good, and because that's true, we have nothing to fear. God is sovereign, God is good, we have nothing to fear. Church, that right there, you know what that is? That's just directly from this verse that says, if God is for us, <laughs> who, what can be against us? I want to say it like this. The sovereignty of our God is the source of ultimate comfort for a child of God. The sovereignty of our God, the fact he is in control of everything, is the greatest, the ultimate sense of comfort as a child of God. When we hit life's trials, when we hit them, when we're facing fear, it's the sovereignty of God that gives us hope. And I want to push on this a little bit. Um, have you ever been in one of those moments where you're dealing with fear and anxiety, you feel kind of overrun by them? I, I, have you been there? I, I have. Those moments of panic that we can sometimes feel, church, as a child of God, when we find ourselves in that place, there's, there's one of three things that can be happening. One of three things that can be happening. One of three things is probably going on in your life when you find yourself in that place. And if you're in this, that place right now, one of three things is probably true. Either, number one, that you are struggling to remember or struggling to believe that you are, in fact, a child of God. You, you, you're doubting who you are in, as a child of God. Maybe that's true for you. Maybe you're there and you get, you're, you're struggling to wrap your mind around it and so you have this anxiety and fear. That could be possible. Number two, though, you could be struggling to remember or to believe that your God is truly sovereign and in control. Number three, you could also be struggling to remember, struggling to believe that your God is truly good. One of these three, three things is happening that leads a believer to anxiety. 
We've either forgotten who we are or forgotten who he is. Forgotten who we are as a child of God or forgotten that he's in control and he's good. Because if we believe that, if we wrap our minds around that, who could possibly stand against us? And I don't say this to to just hurl judgment on you. Um, Because I never deal with that, trust me. No, I'm just saying that as a child of God, we gotta check ourselves to the truth of scripture here. If God is for us, who can possibly, if we truly believe in the sovereignty of our heavenly father who is good, who can possibly stand against you? I pray that we're a people who truly believe in Romans 8.31. What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Um, okay, let's take a moment because I don't want you to misunderstand me um, or misread this. Um, I am not saying, actually, scratch that. It does not matter what I am saying. Um, who cares what I am saying? God's word is not saying that you will not have an adversary in this life. God's word is not saying that you will go without opposition in this life. Hear me, Christian. God's word is not saying that you're never going to have an adversary. It's just reminding you that when you do, it will not be worthy in light of Christ. In this world, buckle up. My words, not Jesus's. I added the buckle up. In this world, buckle up. You're going to face trials. You're going to, things are going to come against you. People are going to come against you. If you're here this morning and you are facing trials, like so many, if you're here right now, if you're listening to this, you're here and you're facing trials, it does not necessarily mean, brother and sister, that you lack faith, that your God is mad at you and that you're doing Christian, Christianity wrong. What this text means so far, and it's just going to get better, is that no matter the trial, hear me, God is bigger. In fact, let's let's let Paul continue here because he's going to remind us the extent of the gospel. He says, he who did not spare his own son, own son meaning pointing to the specialness of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus as the only begotten son of the father. See, in Christ we're adopted as his sons and daughters, but, but Paul reminds us there is but one begotten son. And so Paul points here, he who did not spare his own son, but what? But gave him up for us all. We, we sing a song, oh, how great a love. Uh, that's great. What great cost, what a great God. Uh, listen to this church. God held nothing back in his work of redeeming you. Not even himself. Just take this in. God held nothing back in his work of redeeming you. Not even himself. Church, whatever brings you in this room today, whatever you're facing, whatever your world looks like right now, That's true. 
God held nothing back in his work of redeeming you, not even himself. And church, what a comfort that is. In fact, listen to Paul's logic as he asks this next question. He, or how will he not also, with him graciously, give us all things? In other words, if since he held nothing back in his work of redeeming you, what would lead you to believe that now he will abandon you? You are loved, you are his child, you've been bought at a great price, and your God did not save you to leave you. Pulling all this together, let's take this one in. You're a child of God, adopted into the family of God, co-heir with Jesus, indwelled and powered by the Holy Spirit who guarantees and intercedes for you. You will be glorified with Jesus and God held nothing back from you in his work to ensure that all of that is yours. Take all that in. Now, in light of that, what are you worried about? What are you, what are you worried about this morning? Your career, health, finances, economy, fill in the blank. Listen, I'm not downplaying any of those things. They all have value in our life today, absolutely. But what I am saying here, what Paul is saying here, is that if our God moved heaven and earth to save you, spared nothing in redeeming you, he's got this. He's got you. You have an adversary, but in light of the gospel, your adversary is not worthy. Actually, let me put this another way. Paul's going to push this a little bit. Uh, You have an accuser. He's just not worthy, and more than that, no accusation he makes on you is valid. Listen to what Paul says. Listen to this. Who, Who shall bring any charge? Against one of mine, God's elect. Who, who, who is going to bring any charge? I get this, uh, this image of, of a courtroom scene where the judge is looking out over the courtroom with a booming voice saying, who's going to bring a charge? Who's coming at him now? Because listen, it's God who justifies, Paul says. So Your God has justified you through faith in Christ. He is the just justifier, declared you just. I said this earlier. Not mostly just, not partly just, not good enough, not good enough to get by, not good in comparison to the other bozos in your life. Just. Perfectly just. God justifies you because Jesus Christ took your death took the penalty for your sin, and Jesus now gave you his righteousness and his perfection. And so Paul says, who can possibly bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justified. You, you didn't justify yourself. God did that work. Because God did that work. Who's a worthy accuser? Who's going to come at our God and say, your work's not good enough, God? The answer is no one. No one. 
Paul says, who's to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I want to make two important points here uh, before we move on. The first is that there is a difference between conviction and condemnation. There's a difference between these two things. So scripturally, when you hear the word conviction in a scriptural sense, in a biblical sense, um, this is the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing out things in your heart, sin in your life, and bringing them to light. It's like shining light into dark corners. It's a work of God to shine light. And to reveal sin for his glory. And conviction is so painful. And it reveals sin. But hear me. Conviction is a gift. It is absolutely a gift. Because the purpose of conviction is to reveal sin. To bring us closer to our God. To get us to repent and to turn from our sin to our God. Conviction is a gift because it's God sanctifying us for his glory. Praise God he does not leave us where we are. But he does his work in conforming us to his son. That church is called conviction. And conviction is one of the greatest signs, the greatest assurances that we are his. Conviction hurts. Praise God, it's a gift. Conviction is is very different, though, than condemnation. Condemnation, scripturally, when you see this in scripture, condemnation, the idea of it is that it comes from the accuser of, of your enemy. And it does not lead to repentance. It, it leads us to something else, is something called shame. See, conviction causes us to run to our God. Conviction is the opposite. Convi- or con- condemnation is the opposite. It causes us to run from our God. Condemnation says, you don't belong here. God didn't mean it. You're too dirty to receive those promises. You're worthless. You're destined to be punished. That's all you're good for. See, conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, whereas condemnation, I want to say this very clearly, has no place, none, no place in a believer's life. Who is to condemn? No one. Now, yes, you are going to face As a child of God, praise God, you're going to face conviction for your sin because God's forming you for your glory and your, for his glory in in our good. Let me remind you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will have this. But church, if you have this, you're being lied to. If you have condemnation this morning, you are being lied to. There is a difference between conviction and condemnation. The second thing I want you to see here um, before we dig in a little bit more is that you have direct access 
to your God, even when you do not know what to say or do. Last week, Herb walked us through beautiful text that showed that the Spirit himself intercedes on our behalf. This week, we read something very similar. We see Christ himself at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Have you ever been in a place in prayer where you have no idea what to say? You have no idea what to do? If you're being honest, you don't even feel like doing it. Well, the Spirit himself intercedes, groans for you. The Son himself intercedes for you from the right hand of the Father on your behalf. What incredible hope that is. And the reason I bring this up is because it makes what we're about to read possible. It makes what Paul is about to say make sense. Um, but, but listen, let me pause button here. Um, I'd like to just take maybe a little pastoral moment here before we shift gears to make sure we're on the same page. Um, pastorally, I sometimes get very concerned um, about the way that we present the gospel. Um, I don't know your background, many of you. Some of you I do. Uh, I don't know your background, but chances are, there's, there's a good chance you've heard something like what I'm about to say. Um, or you've been told this personally. I get really concerned with gospel presentations that sound like this. Okay, you ready? Life is really hard. You're sad and you're broken. Your life doesn't make sense. You have a God-shaped hole in your heart that nothing you can do can fill it. Um, Your life is just, it's not going to go well. It's not going to be good. So come to Jesus. He will come into your heart, fill your heart. Your sad life will become happy. Your broken life will be fixed. Your life will make sense. You're going to have your best life. You're going to have it now. You're going to have it today. Come to Jesus for your best life where things are going to be great and things are going to make sense. Come to Jesus as God will give you blessing after blessing after blessing until you just cannot contain the blessings that are going to be heaped on you. And so here's what it's presented like. Gospel presentation. On this side, your life is terrible. On this side, your life is great. And you get Jesus. Which one do you want? Choose Jesus, right? Um, Okay. Church... um, the, the theological term for this is garbage. That's garbage. <laughs> it leads to massive confusion. It distorts the gospel and gives the enemy a foothold. And my fear is that it's creating a bunch of immature Christians whose commitment to Jesus is only as deep as their last 
feeling of being blessed. My fear is that this kind of gospel presentation is creating a bunch of immature believers who have the flimsiest of all flimsy hopes. That when trials come our way, when life is not easy, when we don't feel, get me here, when you don't feel as close to God as you once did, you wonder in that moment, what am I doing wrong? Or more accurately, I wonder where God has went, has gone. I wonder if he's just, he's over me. When we proclaim the gospel, in other words, as come to Jesus so that you can get other things, whether those things be happiness, health, wealth, prosperity, success, fill in the blank. When we proclaim the gospel as Jesus is the means to another end, we have missed it. The gospel call is not the call to an easy life. Here it is. Here's the gospel call. Come to Jesus and get Jesus. And he is worth it and he's eternally better. My prayer for us here at Stone Oak Bible is that we would not be a collection of fair weather fans of Jesus. but that we would be a confident children of God with an unwavering hope, a hope that looks like what I'm about to read. Verse 35. Who who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will it be tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Who shall separate us from the love of, of Christ? Christian, the gospel is not that the trials and persecution will never come to you in Jesus. The gospel is not that bad things, hey, bad things aren't going to happen to you anymore. No, church, the gospel is that when they do, they cannot and will not separate you from Christ. The gospel is that they will not win. The gospel is that your God is bigger. He is better. That is the gospel, and he will hold you through it all, whatever you face, and he even will work it all together for the good. Listen, um, if you were told, hey, come to Jesus and get your best life today, happiness, health, wealth, success, come to Jesus, I am sincerely sorry. You were, you, were mis, you were misled. And as you look at scripture, you will not see this. Let's just take the, uh, let's look at Peter. Let's look at John. For that matter, take any one of Jesus' disciples. Let's take Paul. Their life in Christ did not make their lives easier on earth. In fact, every single one of them faced an intense persecution. Almost every one of them were martyred. And the one who wasn't, don't be envious of that. Because it was persecution beyond what we can even wrap our minds around sometimes. But you know what, church? None of that separated them from the love of Christ 
the love of their God in Christ. God is better, and he was worth it all so much so that they were, they were willing to live for Christ, and they were willing to die for him. Because he is worth it, because he is true. They knew that not even death was going to separate them. In fact, all death was going to do was to bring them closer to the presence of Christ. All death was going to do was, go, it was, it was just going to allow them to imitate Jesus in his death, knowing that one day they would imitate Jesus in his resurrection. Nothing can separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ. Nothing, not even death itself. Paul then is going to quote a psalm here in our text. Um, this one's an interesting one. I'm going to be honest with you. This one's a, this one's a fun one. Um, we won't have time to go into a lot of detail here, but I think we can do our best to to understand where it's coming from. And um, this is definitely worth, though, your time. If you have some time this week and you want to dig into, take a look at Psalm 44. Um, But for our time here, I think we can do our best to understand this text for the sake of our context here. The first part of this psalm in Psalm 44 begins pretty normally. It begins with an acknowledgement of the faithfulness of God and that he... His mighty works, it kind of recounts them. But then something happens around verse 9. All of a sudden in verse 9, it shifts. And you begin to see and understand, hey, things weren't actually going well when this psalm was written. Things were, uh, things weren't great. And yet, so they look back and they say, God, yeah, you were faithful then, but where are are you now? Where is that favor now, God? The things are going against us, and where are you? Another interesting thing about this psalm is, is verse 17 of this psalm. They make it very clear. It's not that we've left you. It's not that we have forsaken your covenant. That's not it. It's not that we've turned away from you. It's just that things are going terribly. The people of God were facing, in Paul's words, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And it led them in their distress to call out, God, what are you doing? Verse 22, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. God, what are you doing? I'll say this again. I'm going to say it probably 17 more times. Children of God, you are not exempt from life's struggles. This is true in the Old Testament for the Old Testament saints. It's true for the New Testament saints. It's true for all of the New Testament church, including you and including me. We are not exempt. Your best life is not yet. But I want to be clear. Because this is not a woe is me kind of message today. In fact, I said at the beginning, this is a text of hope, real hope, honest hope, what I like to call a durable hope. But church, I just want to make sure that your hope is in the right place. Because, hear me, hear me, in other words, 
If your hope this morning is in the, hey, that life is going to go well in Jesus and you're not going to face trials and it's going to be peachy. If that's your hope, church, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to face disappointment. Jesus told you in this world you're going to face troubles. Don't ignore him. But if your hope is in Jesus, no matter what you face, you will not ever be disappointed. In fact, you will be supermen and women, to use Paul's words. Let me show you what I mean. No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So in the face of the trials, in the face of everything and anything that this world has to throw at you, Paul says, you are more than conquerors. This is a fun word here. Um, I don't usually put Greek words because it does nothing for you, but it does show us some things here. So, so this is, is two Greek words smushed, all right? Hooper, nikao. Hooper, nikao. So like super or hyper, that's where we get this word. And Nikon, which is like Nike or Nikon, which means victory. So victory, um, um, it, it's conquering. It's, it's, but when you put the words and you smush them, it becomes super victors. More, not just victory, but like victory to the utmost. It is, it is victory to the ultimate degree. We are hyper conquerors, super victors, supermen and superwomen. In the Greek. So the promise, it's not that you're never going to face trials in this life. The promise is when you do, you will be super victors in face, in, in light of Christ. You will be super victors through him. See, Paul is not giving you a false hope of sunshine and lollipops. He's giving you a real hope. That Jesus will always be enough no matter the circumstance. He will never let you go. And listen to how Paul reiterates this now. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, things present to come, powers, height, depth, or anything else. I love that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul works across the entire gamut, from the heights to the, to the depths, to, the, to uh, present, to future, life, death. It's all covered. And, and like I said, I love that phrase, that or anything else. That's like, if you have anything that you're wondering about, Paul just puts this clause in here, it's covered. It, it, it's covered. If you're wondering, has God forgotten about me in this trial? Is this trial too much? Is this trial too big? Is COVID-19 just a little bit out of his range? I want you to be sure that whatever you're facing, it's covered by this list. Nothing will be able to separate you from being a child of God. Nothing will take what from you what is yours, the promise, the security, the love that is yours in Christ Jesus, your Lord, nothing, nothing. And I want to finish with this, uh, this morning, I have been, this has been on my heart all week long, um, 
I want to read the words as we, as we kind of bring this to a close. I want to bring the words, uh, bring Jesus' words out that he said in Matthew 7. If you want to turn with me there, you can. If not, it's okay. Um, in Matthew 7, specifically verse 13, Jesus says this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the wide, or for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus gives us two gates. There's a narrow one and a, and a wide one. The wide one, just to summarize his words here, is the path of least resistance. It's the easy one. More than that, though, it's the popular one. It's the natural one. It's the one that gains a following. And then, contrasting that, he talks about the narrow gate, and Jesus says this, this path he doesn't sugarcoat it. It's hard. It's not easy. It's not popular. In fact, few find it. Through the wide gate, Jesus says, this one leads you to destruction, whereas the narrow gate, this one leads you to life. Why do I bring this up as we close? Um, <clears throat> I'm about to invite you to respond to the gospel this morning. But I want to make sure that you know what you're responding to. I am not, Jesus did not call you to your best life now, to wealth, health, success. In fact, this path, this narrow path that Jesus talks about, it's not even about any of that. And by the way, many are going to choose the wide path. In fact, let me push this a little bit more. Many are going to choose the wide path, and they're going to sprinkle religion and Jesus into it, staple a little Jesus to the wide path, and then it looks good, and then it's really popular. But that's not the path that Jesus put before us to walk. That's the world's path. That's the wide gate dressed up with some religion. That's not the gospel that I want to call us to respond to this morning. Instead, I'm, I'm calling us to the gospel that Paul presents here, the hope that Paul presents us here, and that's a narrow gate hope that doesn't offer you stuff. It does not offer you ease. It does not offer you even safety. But what the narrow gate does offer you is Jesus. And he, church, is worth it. This road will not be easy. But you're never going to be separated from your God. This road will also, by the way, not be popular. There's going to be a lot of people who look at us walking this road and say, those guys are morons. 
my words. But the road we are on, this road of the narrow gate, is the road that leads to life. Life eternally and abundantly. I'm, I, it's, I'm titling this message, A Durable Hope. Is, the reason I'm doing this is the reality is both of these gates offer some version of hope. For the wide gate, it offers this immediate sense of hope that you're going to have what you want right now. But the problem is, the wide gate is flimsy. That hope is flimsy. It's fading. It continually falls apart. It continually leaves you wanting. It ultimately fails you. The narrow gate, however, it offers you a different kind of hope, one that is durable in the face of all that you walk in, all that you face, a lasting, real, honest hope that is strong enough to endure life. And that will lead you to say with Paul on this narrow gate, it will lead you to stand with Paul and say, what, now what's going to separate me from my God? It's going to lead us to say with Paul, now if my God is for me, who on earth or beyond can come against me? So the invitation that Jesus gives us this morning in, in response to this beautiful text is, is pretty simple. Enter by the narrow gate. Let's pray. Lord, I... I thank you for doing a work on my heart as I have worked in this text and I've read this text hundreds of times and yet this week you have you've wrecked me and um, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for Stone Oak Bible Church and I pray that we would be a people of the narrow gate I pray that we were people, not that we're longing for hardships, but Lord, that we are more concerned about heavenly things, about being with you, about you being with us, that we understand the true joy of what it means to be in Christ, never to be separated, a child of God, that you would show us the joy of what that means in our life today. I pray in, in face of that, in light of that, that we are able to walk differently in this world because our hope is not flimsy. Our hope is not easily shaken. Our hope is rooted and grounded in Christ and therefore our hope will never fail, fall, falter. It is durable and I pray that we are a people of the narrow gate holding to that hope. Nothing can separate us from the love of our God in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray in conclusion, I just pray that for... For everyone here or listening to this, logged in right now, who does not yet know you, maybe you have begun to convict their hearts that they have been on the wide path. I pray that in this moment you begin to bring conviction, not condemnation.
conviction that would cause us in response to turn from our sin and to turn to you knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive. God, we want to be your people. We want to be your children. And we thank you for the work that you have done to make that possible. And so we respond and worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.